If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Exposing the motives and agenda of the world's most powerful. Unleashed. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Only the climate shadow knows. I'm not making this up. Uh, that was, of course, a tip of the hat to Lamont Cranston, who did the shadow radial serial back in the 1940s. Uh, and I would alter his phrase for the radio show to who knows what climate evil lurks in the heart of man. Only the climate shadow knows. What am I talking about? Well, breaking news. National Geographic is retiring use of the phrase carbon footprint for everyone out there. Instead, it's out with carbon footprint and in with your carbon shadow. I'm not making this up. National Geographic, quote, forget your carbon footprint. Your climate shadow is what really matters. It calculates your spiritual and moral reckoning. In other words, carbon footprint was seen as a joke, was seen as the purview of Leonardo DiCaprio, Al Gore, John Kerry, and private jets and, uh, and yachts. And it just wasn't working. People laughed about carbon footprint, carbon offset. So now they have the carbon shadow. It's a shadow. Only the shadow knows. Your, your, your carbon shadow, your climate shadow, carbon shadow. Okay. This is a great story because National Geographic is trying to play around with the language. It's clear carbon footprint had failed. It's clear this was the grift they tried for years to get people to, they have carbon foot carbon footprint calculators all over the web. Here it is. The enormity of the global crisis is so vast that individual actions may seem meaningless. But critics argue that focusing on your carbon footprint is the best, at best time consuming and at worst meaningless. I mean, this phrase has been there their go-to phrase, their go-to calculation, carbon footprint of everything, carbon footprint of oil, the carbon footprint of coal, the carbon footprint uh, of, of every activity of your plane travel, of your gas-powered car. Now we're told it's meaningless by National Geographic. So here's continuing. Instead, the climate shadow has emerged as a more holistic alternative. Everywhere you go, it goes too. Tallying, this is the climate shadow. Everywhere you go, your shadow goes too. Tallying not just your air conditioner use and gas mileage of your car, but also how you vote, how many children uh, you choose to have, where you work, how you invest your money, how you talk about climate change. That's all part of your climate shadow. If you throw shade on climate change or Al Gore, your climate shadow is going to possibly get you. Whether your words amplify the ur urgency or amplify apathy or the worst, denial. This is all according to National Geographic. First coined the phrase uh, climate shadow by Portland, Oregon-based writer Emma Patti, the climate shadow aims to paint a picture of the full sum of one's choices in the impact they have on the planet. The objective is not to create a climate shadow scorecard, rather describes it as sharing my own spiritual and moral reckoning. So it's the idea is this is where you are spiritually. The larger your shadow, the greater your impact on good for the planet. So it's sort of a reverse carbon footprint. The bigger your shadow is on the climate, 
I guess it means you're throwing shade. I'm not, I'm not still that, a little bit a little confused in this. Well, your carbon footprint may shrink if you place solar panels on your roof. Your carbon, your climate shadow would, in contrast, grow when talking to your neighbor about your choices. So if you go out there and virtue signal, like, hey, I got solar panels on my house. What, what are you doing to fight the climate crisis? Critics of carbon footprint calculator, the old school argument, argue that they have co they have been co-opted by oil companies to shift attention and blame away from them and on everyday consumers. A carbon footprint is a qualitative metric uh, measure of righteousness, explains Catherine Hayhoe, a scientist at the Nature Conservatory and professor at Texas Tech. And people use it to feel good about themselves, which we all want to do when we're fearful, scared, worried, concerned, but then they turn it into a measure to judge other people. So there you have it. Out with the carbon footprint, in with the carbon shadow. I'm a little confused because they call it a uh, carbon footprint and a couple of times carbon shadow, but it's the climate shadow is what we're talking about here, the climate shadow. Um, fascinating stuff. So it's just, this is another example of them having to reinvent the game. And I, I told you the story of 2007 when I was in Bali, Indonesia at the United Nations Climate Summit, COP 20, I don't know, actually COP 5, COP, I'd say 10 or 12 at that point. Anyway, John McCain's aide was talking about how they were going to be, John McCain, of course, was pushing climate legislation, cap and trade at the time, the Republican from Arizona. He was, he was, I, I still can't believe he became the party's nominee in 2008. Anyway, his top aide, Floyd DeChamp, was pushing the idea of talking about climate change as extreme weather, as every bad weather event, as a way to measure climate change, to get away from global warming and the focus on temperature. And that's exactly what we have here. This is, I love some of the comments here. When the climate footprint fails to sufficiently terrorize the public, rename it and continue doom slinging and secure your belief that someday there'll be a slogan that will grant you the power to destroy all industry on earth. It's not just climate doomsday fanatics upsetting the, updating their terminology. It's just the climate doomsday is updating the terminology when people get wise to their previous grift. These are just some of the comments I was having fun with on Twitter. Fascinating stuff. So there you have it. It's out with the carbon footprint, in with the climate shadow. Ooh, the shadow knows. Okay, moving along here. I wanted to spend some time here. I got Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, yeah, I live in the state of Virginia in the United States. Primary, if I had an opportunity to go vote in a primary, I would pull the lever for Vivek Ramaswamy. I can't I can't think of anyone who's been a better candidate for president in uh, decades. And then he exceeds Donald Trump at this point. Although Donald Trump, of course, was a very good candidate in 2016 because he had the weight and he was leading and he was winning. I mean, so unfortunately, Vivek Ramaswamy does not have that. He's I think he's third well behind, or maybe he's fourth behind DeSantis and Nikki Haley and way behind Trump. However, the way he's engaging the media, the way he's dealing and framing narratives, the way he's engaging in the other candidates, he's my candidate who I would probably support right now. Just he's incredible. I want to show you this clip and then I have the article from the Washington Post, but this is a Washington Post reporter. Well, Vivek Ramaswamy, I believe he's in either Iowa or New Hampshire. This was just uh, two days ago, and they're asking him to denounce white supremacy because as a conservative, we're all racist, of course, and the liberals are so enlightened, and we have to constantly denounce racism or else we're accused of being racist. So here's how Vivek Ramaswamy handled this Washington Post reporter. Let's play clip one. I mean, what this guy, who are you with? 
Which, which Washington, Post. Washington Post. All right. So, <laughs> potato, potato. Okay. Of course, I condemn any form of vicious racial discrimination in this country, but I think that the presumption of your question is fundamentally based on a falsehood that that really is the main form of racial discrimination we see in this country today. Institutionalized racism is institutionalized racial discrimination that we see that doesn't come from somehow discriminating against people on the basis of some tenet of white supremacy. It's based on affirmative action. It's based on actually discriminating against people on the color of their skin in a way that's actually institutionalized today. Was there a point in our history, at points in our prior national history, where there have been vicious forms of anti-black or anti-brown discrimination throughout this country after the Civil War and otherwise? Yes. But you're looking in the rearview mirror and using that to pose a question today that is so far removed from what the reality is in America today. This myth of white supremacy, the closest you can find is Jussie Smollett, where you all were actually speaking of trust in the media, jumping up and down over some false narrative. The best way you're able to find your best instance of white supremacy was a guy who was actually paying his other fellow people to be actually staging something that didn't happen. And so stop picking on this farce of some figment that exists at some infinitesimally small fringe of the American public today to open our eyes to the actual real threats that we face. And I think that it's frankly questions and framings like that that has caused the American public to lose all trust in the mainstream media, I'm sorry to say, for good reason. Wow. We're not finished. That's clip one of him. And that was just masterfully handled. I got to tell you, if I was on the fence about voting, he deserves to be supported in the primary, a vote cast for him, and I intend to vote for him. The Virginia primary is not for a couple months. I don't even know if he'll still be in the race by then. But phenomenal answer. Now, part two of this, the reporter doubles down and keeps asking. And so Ramaswamy keeps giving it to her in a just brilliant explanation, just goes after this. So let's play clip two, Vivek Ramaswamy versus the Washington Post reporter. I'm not I'm not going to recite some catechism for you. I'm against vicious racial discrimination in this country. So I'm not pledging allegiance to your new religion of modern wokeism, which absolutely fits fits the test. I'm not going to bend the knee to your religion. I'm sorry. I'm not asking you to bend the knee to mine and I'm not going to bend the knee to yours. But do I condemn vicious racial discrimination? Yes, I do. Am I going to play your silly game of gotcha? No, I'm not. And frankly, this is why people have lost trust. And I know you're going to go print the headline tomorrow. I already know this. We already know how your game works. Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy because you asked a stupid question. The reality is I condemn vicious racial discrimination in this country, but the kind of vicious and systematic racial discrimination we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. You want to know what the best way is to end discrimination on the basis of race? Stop discriminating on the basis of race. Do that and we're going to move this country forward. And I don't care whether you're black or white or brown or anything in between. That's how we're going to unite this country. You people have been responsible for dividing this country to a breaking point, creating a projection of national division. I meet people from the south side of Chicago to meetings like this one of every shade of melanin, multiple from man to woman, doesn't make a difference, who are hungry for reviving unity in this country. And you, with your catechism that you try to get to politicians to whatever fake headline you're going to print on the basis of this conversation tomorrow, that's what's dividing this country for a break, to a breaking point. Shame on you. Look people in the eye and tell them what you've actually failed to tell them for the last five years. Own the accountability for your own failures as the media. That's how we rebuild trust in this country. And until then, I don't have a lot of patience to play the games. What do you expect from them? At, a, at an earlier event, you talked about members of government playing by the same rules as everybody else. Wow, Hera. All I got to say is, wow. The Washington Post reporter's name was Meryl Cornfield. 
What did Vivek Ramaswamy tell her? I know your game. Tomorrow, you're going to print a headline that says Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy. Here's the article. I have in my computer, the Washington Post story by Meryl Crow posted eight hours ago before my show goes live. Are you ready? Vivek Ramaswamy refused to directly condemn white supremacy, unquote. Direct quote. Vivek Ramaswamy is like Babe Ruth out there picking where he's going to hit the ball, telling the media exactly what they're going to do before they do it, a full day before they do it. And you'd think the reporter, after he says, you're going to print tomorrow, the Vivek Ramaswamy refused to condemn white supremacy. She actually does the exact, down the, word. the only word she changed was he refused to directly condemn white supremacy. But he called it. And I love how he said, well, I'm not going to recite your catechism. This is the old, how many times uh, do you beat your wife, Senator or Congressman? I mean, that's that same question where there's no answer that you can give where you're not going to look like a bastard, right? And he is, this to me is everything, not the racial component of this question, but the framing. And this is why I beat my head always talking about the narratives and the framing, and you cannot allow the media and the corporations and the academia and the billionaire class and the ruling class to frame our issues. We saw the how important the framing was in COVID for them. You know, we are facing emergency, 20 million dead. If you go out of your house, if you go to church, you're a grandma killer. And we're not going to tolerate it. You're a bad person. You're evil. We're going to give snitches, get rewards. That's all narrative and framing and a setting up a, uh, a framing that you have to challenge and not accept. The problem is, and this is the number one problem, is that the people who are supposed to be opposed to it, the Republican Party, conservatives in other countries, and we're going to get to that in a minute, when it comes to these kind of narratives, accept the narrative and, and just nibble at the edges and don't want to be challenged, don't ever want to challenge the premise for fear they're called racist, for fear they're called COVID deniers, for fear they're called climate deniers. Vivek Ramaswamy, just phenomenal. I just want to say that again. And I love that catechism line because this is their religion. That reporter was completely, and again, her name, and you can look up the article, but Meryl Cornfield Ramaswamy increasingly embraces fringe theories, far-right claims in Iowa, which I don't even understand that. that he just ate her lunch uh, and actually told her what she was going to write, and she dutifully wrote it, not taking orders from Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy just knows how the game is played. So phenomenal, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Okay. Going off of that, um, there's a guy running, I guess, against, and I ho hope I get my Canadian politics right and I pronunciation right, but he's running uh, as the main, uh, I guess, the establishment choice against, or the establishment right, he sounds pretty conservative, candidate against Justin Trudeau for prime minister. His name is Pierre Polyver. I've been following him on YouTube. Very impressed. I love all his clips. I love his mannerisms, his demeanor. I love the way he challenges the media shades of Vivek Ramaswamy. But here's a video I want to play you on what he says about climate change and the energy debate. And he just lost me. And I just, it's so frustrating because this, my friends, is where we lose it all. The next clip from Pierre, Pol I hope I'm saying this right, it's French, Pierre Polyver, Polyver uh, is running against Justin Trudeau. And the way he concedes the narrative on climate. Go ahead and watch this clip and then I'll analyze it and then I'll bring it to America too. So this is clip three, Pierre Polivare 
caving in on climate change narrative. Canadians are paying more for foreign food rather than paying less for Canadian food. I will axe the tax to bring home lower gas, heat, and grocery bills. My plan on the environment is technology and not taxes. We need to green light green projects like nuclear power to re reduce our dependence on coal, carbon capture and storage so that our oil and gas sector can put the, the carbon back in the ground where it came from, and we can become the lowest emitting source of oil anywhere on planet Earth. Oil, by the way, will be used roughly 60 to 100 million barrels a day for the next two decades, if you believe the International Energy Agency. So we think it should be low emitting Canadian oil to bring home that money to Canada. We need to green light tidal wave power off the East Coast, like the one that Trudeau killed in Nova Scotia. We need to green light Quebec's plan to double its hydroelectric capacity. We can't afford five or six years of federal red tape blocking hydroelectric dams that, that are going to be necessary to supply the kilowattage to power uh, an electric economy. So where Justin Trudeau and the NDP want to raise the cost of traditional energy that we still need, I want to lower the cost of carbon-free alternatives. That's the fundamental change that I propose. It's common sense. Let's bring it home. No. Wrong, wrong, wrong. First of all, he at the end, we'll start with the back, go backwards. He talked about the electrical economy, electrify everything. That's part of this net zero climate goal. And in order to do that, you know, we got to get off fossil fuels and we're going to make the carbon free energy cheaper. I'm going to streamline that. No, you've accepted their narrative that Canadian oil is dirty, is bad. And the idea is, but somehow you can import oil from the Middle East and China, and you can get EV batteries, and you can get solar and wind panels from China with rare earth mining and half a million pounds going into one battery just completely blows apart um, any chance he has to fight this agenda. He's conceding it, and he's now arguing on the margins from a defensive point of view, accepting all of their claims and facts and goals. That's the key word, goals. He's going to help them achieve their climate goals, the net zero goals. We're going to make renewable energy. We're going to do carbon capture and storage. What a crappy boondoggle. Uh, Pierre, how did you even come up with it? This is Republican donors love it. Democrat donors love it. It's going to be federal money going to spend to put those emissions back in the ground for the oil companies, right? A huge boondoggle so you can have an accounting trick on your paper claiming that you captured the CO2 and Canada's meeting its net zero goals so we can meet the energy supply. He talks about uh, the, the tidal wave power, which I have not studied in depth, but it sounds like another government boondoggle of tons of money going to favored industries with the best lawyers and lobbyists. Sorry, nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. He does not challenge the premise of any of these claims. He sounds like he's pandering to some mushy middle so that he doesn't offend anyone. I'm a climate candidate too. We have to meet to net zero. We have to electrify the economy. We have to bury CO2. Sorry, you lost my vote. And I'm not even Canadian, but I still won't vote for you. I won't even write you in from the US now. Anyway, reminds me of someone else. And that's clip four. This is GOP House Speaker Kevin McCarthy 
playing that same nauseating game where you do this. And let's. And by the way, we saw the same thing happen with in COVID with the lockdowns. Oh well, I think the I think the this is Republicans saying this. Many Republican senators, congressmen, conservative. I think they just locked down too long. The lockdown should have ended a while ago. I think kids should have got. You know, the mask mandates probably could have ended sooner. No, they never should have began. You morons. Sorry. This is clip four. This is our. This was our former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Why I cheered his removal, uh, talking about climate change. Hi, I'm Kevin McCarthy. Welcome to the Energy Innovation Agenda. Over the next few days, House Republicans will be highlighting dozens of bills and solutions we have on energy and climate. Our solutions promote innovation, invest in clean energy infrastructure, and outline initiatives in natural solutions and conservation. Democrats often dismiss Republicans as being disinterested in addressing global climate change. This is just false. Our members have been working for years to develop thoughtful, targeted legislation to reduce global emissions by ensuring we can develop and build a new technology at home that is clean, affordable, and exportable. Unlike Democratic plans, Ours don't kill American jobs or make American energy more expensive to increase taxes and regulations. Instead, House Republicans are focused on solutions that make American energy cleaner, more affordable, and also reduce emissions around the world. And again, he's accepting the goal of reducing emissions. He's accepting the goal that green energy is clean energy. He's accepting the goal that we have to sort of put limits across the board. He's accepting the, the idea that climate is a problem that needs a solution, which he said the word solutions, the climate change over and over. They've sent a delegations to UN climate summits. They're not challenging any of the premise. The public is being told that we face a climate emergency, a climate crisis, that we have climate shadows following us all around, and that we need to literally give up gas-powered cars and meat-eating and high-yield agriculture. We need planned recessions to fight global warming. We need targeted blackouts. We need to make climate part of public health that needs to have the same template, 200 medical journals. And this is Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader at the time. His response is, well, yeah, it's a problem and we're right there with him, but we're going to be a little bit more efficient and we're going to help the economy more than those other people. We, 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 climate's a problem. We have our solutions. Sorry, you lose. Enjoy retirement. And by the way, Kevin McCarthy will enjoy retirement. Multi-million dollar contracts, book deals, TV deals. As a faded member of the establishment, he's going to be loving life. Trust me, he's not going to be hurting at all. But I just hate to see this play out now in Canadian politics. And I guess Max Bernier is the other one that people tell me that's who people should support. I don't follow Canadian politics that much. But what a shame. Canada, U.S., it's, it's our lot. Anyway, all right. Enough of this. Uh, I'm going to now, we're going to take a break. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. When we come back, we will be joined by, uh, um, uh, one second here. I'm sorry about this. We're going to be joined by Ben Zyker uh, to talk the latest climate and energy. Zyker is with the American Energy, American, uh, American AEI. Yeah, I always mess that up. Anyway, we'll be right back after this message. Thank you. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. 
So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government, is doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media, like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. I said, could she die? And the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe and I thought, you know, what are we going to do if I die here? <laughs> How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush. Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7. Your news talk giant. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. Okay, we're joined now by Benjamin Zyker, Senior Fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. I don't know why I was saying American Energy Institute, AEI. Uh, he works on energy and environmental policies. Welcome to the program today, Benjamin. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. All right, do you want to give us an overview of the way you see America 2024 with our energy? Uh, give me a big overview, big picture. You know, we had the four years of Donald Trump, and now we've had you know, three years plus of Joe, oh, almost three years plus of Joe Biden. Where do we stand energy-wise? Is American energy going strong? Uh, are we on the verge of a major blackouts and energy collapse? And uh, how would you rate the American energy scorecard after three years of Biden? Yeah, well, it's not very good, that Biden scorecard. Um uh, particularly in the dimensions of energy supply uh, that are heavily influenced by the federal government, things are not good. Uh, oil production is is going very strong, as is natural gas production, but but most of that is on private land, over which the administration has only limited influence uh, in the short run. With respect to the electricity grid and other matters, things are much more dire. I don't think we're on the verge of a blackout soon, but looking down the road two years, four years, five years, I think there are very serious problems being created by the policy push to replace conventional power generation, most of which is natural gas and also coal and nuclear and all the rest with wind and solar power which are inherently unreliable and which for various uh, reasons of basic engineering cannot uh, drive or uh, power a modern electricity grid uh, without serious problems. So I think that uh, we're headed uh, to use uh, popular vernacular in the wrong direction 
And uh, it may be the case that until uh, serious dislocations occur, we won't get policy reform out of this administration uh, or the next one, assuming uh, under the assumption that Mr. Biden is uh, reelected. If if uh, whoever his opponent turns out to be is, is elected, I think we will get some serious uh, policy reforms in the right direction, but it will take time to implement them. And these investments take a lot of time, and uh, and I don't think things will turn on a dime. So we're headed into some some turbulent waters, at least over, say, the next five years, and we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Now, you're in California, is that correct? You live there? No, I'm in Washington State. Oh, Washington State, okay. Well, I was about to say, uh, say like a younger uh, Democrat candidate, say say it goes to Gavin Newsom, the California governor, would that worry you more than if, say, Biden's reelected? Uh, in, in other words, would a younger, more energetic, more climate committed, focused candidate like a Gavin Newsom potentially do more damage to the American energy? Or is, is are we pretty much at max damage now that the federal government can do? Well, the federal government can always do more damage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of ruin in the nation, as the old saying goes. And um, uh, I would, I would expect a President Newsom or some other younger um, uh, candidate uh, upon election to continue the policies that uh, have been uh, have been promulgated over the last three years. Uh, I also have a sense that there might be a certain slowing of the regulatory onslaught, et cetera, because of uh, the political effects of, of looming uh, blackouts and brownouts and all the rest. Um, the people surrounding Mr. Biden, I, I, I rather doubt that Mr. Biden understands any of this, frankly. Um yeah, people around him, to the extent that they do understand it, uh, I think don't particularly care. I, I just it's it's much more it really what what is passing for energy policy in this day and age is really an ideological drive, uh, narrowly against fossil fuels and much more broadly against modern industrial society, uh, with all of the implications that flow from that set of uh, you know, political and ideological imperatives. We see that not only in the electricity sector, we see it uh, as part of the drive to replace wholesale the uh, vehicle fleet with electric vehicles and similar um, similar technologies that's, that A, are expensive, B, are environmentally destructive in their own way, and severely so. And third, uh, do not serve the needs of uh, consumers. And so I would expect the policies to continue, but perhaps to be slowed down because of the adverse political implications of, uh, of, what, is, um, of what is looming because of these policies. You'll notice in California, uh, there's an effort, and I think it'll be successful, to keep uh, the San, uh, not San Onofre, but Diablo Canyon, the nuclear power plant, running, uh, even though it was scheduled to be shut down in 2025. Um, that will be subjected to a number of court challenges, but in the end, I think I think Diablo Canyon will be kept up. Uh, there are efforts to um, 
to keep uh, running several natural gas generating plants that were scheduled to be shut down. The, the prospect of blackouts uh, is uh, quite sobering for the, uh, the political leadership uh, that otherwise would support um, the ideological opposition to fossil fuels and conventional energy. And uh, so, I th again, I think I think there will be a slowdown in the event that Mr. Biden is replaced by someone like Governor Newsom. But the basic policy thrust will continue. Well, you have uh, I, I, South Africa, I guess it was last August or September 2023, was reported that they met their net zero climate goals because of unintentional blackouts. And I don't know why, but the Los Angeles Times seemed to be inspired by that. And one of their proposals was actually planned blackouts in order to meet climate goals and reduce climate change. How do we, you know, you're talking about blackouts scaring politicians, but why are major media outlets actually proposing the idea of a planned blackout? It's not very far off. Years ago at a UN climate summit, Kevin Anderson of the Tyndale Center was proposing planned recessions in order to fight global warming. And then I got to think about it, what is the Green New Deal except a planned recession of the economy with everything micromanaged? But how do we get to the point where major media outlets like the LA Times is promoting the idea to meet our climate goals we should have? Well, the, I mean, the LA Times, um, which decades ago, for those of us old enough to remember, was a fairly serious newspaper, uh, <laughs> uh, no longer is that. And, and for a number of reasons that, and the same is true for a number of other major media outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, for a number of reasons, uh, A, they are staffed by ideological leftists who um, support all this and are true believers in the imminence of a climate crisis um, uh, representing, quote, an existential threat uh, whose existence is actually being threatened is never explained, but that aside, uh, if, in fact, there's an existential threat, then no cost is too high and no benefit is too small in their pursuit of some sort of amelioration. So there's an ideological component. There is also a business component with the advent and growth of the Internet over the last two decades or more. Uh, the advertising model for uh, major news outlets has basically been destroyed and so there has to be a a market segmentation approach in which the news media are, are given components of the news media media um, attempt to uh, appeal to particular constituencies or parts of the uh, of the news consuming public and for the LA Times the New York Times and Washington Post that is, consumers who are <clears throat> at at most center left and ranging all the way to hard leftists and so you see um, they produce things that satisfy the ideological uh, biases of the staffers the writers and all the rest and appeal to their preferred uh, consumers of their news and so that that that's what we see Wow. Um, and uh, well, what about you? you... Good. Okay. Well, well, sorry. 
you said you're in the state of Washington, and I just there was about two weeks ago a report of one of the legislators there wants to make even jail time for people continuing to use gas leaf blowers, and I guess they're going after all sorts of lawn care equipment, forcing people into battery operated, banning gas powered. I guess part of it is noise, but the other part is the climate and emission angle. How does a state like that, you know, where does that, does that save the planet if in fact we had a climate crisis? And how does that uh, impact you know, everyday life if you're starting to ban not only gas powered in cars, but now you're going after all the you know, lawn yeah. care? Yeah, if you, uh, I've, I've written about this extensively for years. Um, if you use the Environmental Protection Agency climate model, to make predictions about the future climate effects of current policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And this has nothing to do with whether uh, with the evidence on whether or not there's a crisis either looming or already upon us. There isn't, there's no such evidence. But that aside, if you use the EPA climate model, it turns out that the entire Biden administration net zero policy, uh, net zero emissions by the year by the U.S. by the year 2050 would reduce, and if that were achieved and maintained for the rest of the century, that would reduce temperatures in the year 2100 globally by 0 0.173 degrees Celsius. Uh, and that is under a set of assumptions that exaggerate the effects of reduced emissions of greenhouse gas emissions. If you use a set of assumptions much more consistent with the uh, findings reported in the peer-reviewed literature, the temperature effect in the year 2100 would be barely more than one-tenth of a degree, which is less than the standard deviation or the uh, margin of error, if you want to call it that. Of the surface temperature record so these policies even at a national level these policies would have effects that are virtually unmeasurable or literally unmeasurable um, at very 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 enormous economic costs and that observation for any given state uh, Washington, California, you name it, uh, uh, is even stronger because any given state is just a small part of the whole of uh, the emissions behavior for the whole U.S. economy. And so the uh, somewhere I did this calculation for the state of Washington a while back, and I can't remember the number, but it was in the if, if the state of Washington were to achieve a net zero emissions immediately and maintain that for the rest of the century, the effect on global temperatures in the year 20 would be, it was something like three ten thousandths of one degree or something like that. Some, some you couldn't even amount. measure it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, um, well, you could measure it, but you couldn't detect it is the problem. Uh, you can measure it theoretically. You can detect it. Um, so, but we have uh, here in the state of Washington, just very briefly, um, a governor, Jay Inslee, who... I mean, forgive me for being so crude. Uh, I, I ask that of you and, and the audience, who is fundamentally a rather stupid and ignorant man, <laughs> utterly convinced of his wisdom, supported by um, a mass of voters in King County, uh, Seattle, which is something on the order of 40% of, uh, 
of the state's population that votes for these measures. And there's, at a political level, it's very difficult to do anything about it. Um, wow. You'll notice that the voters in King County, many of whom are high-tech voters, high-tech workers, things like that, uh, were perfectly happy to vote for policies or support policies imposing taxes on the emissions of greenhouse gases, so-called carbon taxes, things like that. But when someone proposed an, a raise, an increase rather than in income tax rates, they voted that down because that would they would have to bear that. <laughs> right. <laughs> These are people yeah. who take public transportation and all the rest. So they're uh, apart from ignorance and stupidity and um, and a real contempt uh, on the part of these elites for ordinary working people. Uh, there's also a good deal of hypocrisy involved in uh, in the promulgation of these policies at the state level. Wow. All right. Well, we're talking with Ben Zeicher, Senior Fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages on Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands heal our waters and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days, they haven't drank anything, they're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. The country has been prolonged for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution. And we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Mark Morano is unleashed and he's taking on the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. I'm your host, Mark Morano. We're joined again by Ben Zyker at the American Enterprise Institute, a policy analyst on energy and climate. You were just we are, we just had a public service announcement from the Nature Conservancy running uh, about all the environmental problems. You wanted to comment on that, Ben. What did you have to say about that ad? Well, the ad uh, basically uh, began with a series of photos and uh, short 
short video clips uh basically um in an effort to illustrate that that the world is going to you know where in a handbasket environmentally yes. and we better do something in fact environmental parameters virtually on a universal basis are improving worldwide uh, as the world gets wealthier it demands more environmental quality and environmental protection and that's what we're seeing in the u.s uh, the emissions of pollu real pollutants, not 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 greenhouse gases, which are not not pollutants at all, uh, have, have been going down exponentially uh, for years. And some of the um, virtually every problem illustrated in that ad has been caused by government. The forest fire problem in the U.S. has been caused by uh, um incredibly ridiculous and destructive forest management policies on the part of the government. I, I once was debating um, a young lady from the Sierra Club on one of the NPR radio stations about climate phenomena, and she continued to insist over and over again that the wildfire problem in the U.S. Uh, was evidence of a climate crisis. And so I asked her on the air, please explain why increasing atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases should be expected to create adverse wildfire effects in government forests vastly greater than those in the private forests <laughs> and after after a silence of what seemed like a like a minute it wasn't it was just a few seconds the host tried to jump in and, and change the subject which I, I i didn't let him do i said no let's let the young lady answer the question and he immediately cut to an ad and and uh, he he saved her basically from i think some real embarrassment. <laughs> But yeah, and, you know, uh, that ad is, uh, I'm a little bit surprised that in an interview with me, you run an ad like that. It's kind of <laughs> about, well, really, we believe in really rather amusing. Uh, I know you, uh, like good capitalists, you sell out to the highest bidder and that's fine. But, uh, well, but I, I reserve the right to comment on, on the, it's the fairness doctrine. We're bringing back both sides. So in order to, to right. sort of counter, right. counter, yes. counter say what you're doing, we have to show the nature right. conservancy. Okay. Now right. I obviously have no say. Okay. Good for you. Nothing, nothing like a <laughs> fairness to uh, money the water. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, has a rule, I guess, the climate disclosure, climate risk disclosure rule. Can you explain what that is? What their intention is to use that, and what the problem is with 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 advancing these kind of rules through the Securities and Exchange Commission? Well, sadly, we don't have a couple of hours. For this <laughs> well, <interview. laughs> it is a proposed rule. It was proposed well over a year ago. I and a number of others wrote very lengthy comments on the rule, the proposed rule. It has still not been finalized, uh, essentially because it is so replete with problems, both legal and analytic, and is so self-contradictory that the SEC uh, chairman, Gary Gensler, has really painted himself into a corner with this. And I think that they're having a great deal of difficulty figuring out how to extract themselves from this quicksand in which they uh, dived headfirst without giving much thought. The proposed rule attempts to force public companies to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and the risks that those greenhouse gas emissions pose to their business operations and to investors in the public companies. 
And there are what are called scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Scope one are emissions directly um, uh, emitted by the given company and its production activities. Scope two, the emissions associated with its energy consumption, particularly electricity. And scope three, which is really the most problematic, emissions uh, from its suppliers and customers some of whom are private companies not subject to SEC regulation. So the one purpose, one central purpose of the regulation is to force private companies to adhere to SEC regulations in a world in which the SEC uh, legally has uh, responsibilities only over public companies, not private ones. So it is a massive expand, an attempt to massively expand its uh, legal authority, and uh, I think the courts will, will, if it's finalized, will strike it down rather quickly. The the regulation, the, the the argument that a private company, however big, can estimate climate risks, is rather silly. Uh, even IPIC, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has difficulty doing this on a on a global basis. Uh, the idea that that companies can do this for their particular sectors or geographic regions is fanciful and and the... this is go ahead Good. well that's is this part of the social cost of carbon they try to calculate that and the damage uh, you know any well that that's a different uh that's a different parameter uh the environmental protection agency and and all the agencies that uh have what they claim is authority over greenhouse gas emissions have have promulgated a number of uh, proposed and finalized regulations in which they are forcing reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. I'll give you an example in a moment. Um, and they claim enormous benefits from uh, um, from the uh, nominal or assumed reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Well, as I mentioned earlier, even for the whole economy, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions would have climate effects over the course of the century effectively equal to zero. And so how do they how do they claim large benefits? Well, they apply a, a parameter called the social cost of carbon, which I, I won't bore you with the details. It's kind of complicated, but I will say that the social cost of carbon uh, calculation promulgated by first the Obama administration and now by the Biden administration is the single most dishonest exercise in politicized arithmetic I have ever seen produced by <laughs> the federal government. And so what they do is even though a given regulation would have no effect, literally, and they admit this, literally no effect that's measurable on climate phenomena, they claim they would generate enormous economic benefits by taking the assumed reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, multiplying it by uh, the social cost of carbon and coming up with a big number, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. It's just completely phony. I'll give you one example. Sure. Um, uh, from back in the Obama administration, they promulgated a rule, an efficiency rule, uh, EPA, um, for medium and heavy trucks. And they claimed in the rule that it would reduce global temperatures in the year 2100 using the EPA climate model that I described earlier, between 26 and 65 
ten thousandths of one degree, in other words, zero. Yeah. Yeah. And then they claim that the rule would generate over a hundred billion dollars in net economic benefits. How did they come up with that? Well, they multiplied their assumed reduction in greenhouse gas emissions under the rule by the social their estimate of the social cost of carbon. And that's how they came up with that number. And it's completely phony, literally completely phony. And that's what that's the game that's being played now. Wow. All right. Well, in a few minutes we have left, I'd like to talk about the offshore wind right now. There seems to be, I guess, about a dozen major offshore wind struggling, closing. The most recent was BP off of uh, New York State. Uh, how is this? Uh, they're blaming inflation, supply chain, economic conditions. But how is offshore wind failing when you have the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into green energy, and wind is a big recipient of that? How is it failing when when they're putting all the restrictions on fossil fuels uh, to the extent, and all the all the mandates, subsidies, regulatory, all favor? wind how are these things still not you know how are these big well, projects because the subsidies and the favoritism aren't big enough offshore wind is depending on on the circumstances for any given project is something like four times as expensive as onshore wind and that is even without the costs of backup in the form of batteries or um uh, or uh, basically gas turbines. And uh, the subs as large as you point out, uh, Mark, as the subsidies and favoritism are, uh, the companies um, planning these projects simply cannot make the numbers come out given the enormous costs involved in um, in uh, in uh, uh, setting up or investing in offshore uh, offshore wind farms even the projects that are anchored in the seafloor are three or so times as expensive as onshore wind uh, for projects in deep waters where the um, the wind turbines are envisioned to be on floating platforms that's another two or three times as expensive still so there's that problem. There's also growing, Robert Bryce and others have, have talked about this. Uh, there are also, um, there's growing localized opposition uh, to the effects of these, uh, of these projects in terms of site, site uh, un unsightly projects within uh, viewing distance of the shoreline, transmission lines that have to be built uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and there are all the other problems, wildlife destruction and, um, and all the other environmental problems that, that are attendant upon wind and solar power generally that the, uh, proponents don't like to talk about, but they're there and they're important. But the narrow answer to your question is the costs are so enormous and the opposition is growing so rapidly that the projects are simply not viable, even with the favoritism that you've mentioned. Wow. All right, well, we're running out of time. Uh, thank you so much. It's been Ben Zeicher with the American Enterprise Institute, their senior fellow on energy and policy. Thank you for joining Unleashed today. And uh, my apologies for that ad, uh, The Nature Conservancy, uh, hopefully. <laughs> oh, no, I enjoyed that ad, believe me. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you take you take your amusement wherever you can find it.
All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, we'll be back uh, next week with a full slate of shows. Uh, thanks for watching. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT.